Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next edition of our PwC Tax Byte podcast. Today, we will talk about the US elections and more specific what this could mean from a tax perspective. I have the right experts with me for an interesting discussion on this topic. And, and first of all, I have with me Tom Patton. Tom is a US tax partner, seconded to London, and he's working with various European businesses that look at the US markets. Uh, many of you may have been in contact with Tom already for questions on US taxation. Also, Evie Heert is here with us today. Evie, a director in our uh, global tax team, spent uh, many years secondment in New York. So she has been on the terrain and knows better than anyone else here in our team what it means to uh, be active in the US and what US taxation is about. And also we have Jean-Philippe van West with us. Jean-Philippe um, is an expert in European law and he will bring us the European perspective to the topic. Um, yeah, interesting topic, lots to say about it. So I suggest we kick off. And perhaps my first question is for you, Tom. The, the US elections have been on the front page for months, also in Europe. And now that the dust is settling down a little bit, it might be good to start this discussion with a quick recap for our listeners on the outcome of the elections and what this could mean for the Biden administration in terms of options going forward. Sure. Thanks, Peter. Um, what, you know, so what we saw this this time around in the election was the, you know, it took until January for really us for us to really understand what the makeup of Congress really was and were, were the Democrats going to have um, c control of of the entire Congress. And so that was looking at the uh, by the runoff elections in Georgia, um, which the Democrats took both seats on. And so in the Senate, that means uh, it's a 50-50 split uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans. With a Democratic-controlled White House, that, that means, in effect, the Democrats control the Senate as a result of the vice president having a tie-break vote. And they have a majority of about 10 seats uh, in, in the House as well. So in, in principle, this means the Democrats uh, can enact, enact legislation without the need to have the Republicans on side. Uh, that being said, um, there are some uh, limits to the ability to do that. So they'll have to work within budget constraints uh, to, to get there. Um, they won't be able to just pass legislation that is just entirely unfunded or, or without regard to what the budget outlook is. There, there's a specific procedure that they're gonna have to follow. And, and, and perhaps more importantly, that, you know, that majority or that control is 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 there, but it does require, for instance, in the Senate, having all fifty Democrats on board. Uh, it, you know, the the majority of ten in the in the House is also not massive, and and you know we're, they're going to have their eye on uh, elections in twenty twenty two. So, notwithstanding this, you know, <laughs> this was as you say was in the paper for for months. Um, 2022 doesn't, in fact, seem that that um, that far away for yet another election. But you know, the House will be fully up for re-election, and then one third of the Senate will be up as well. So, so they're going to have that in mind um, in terms of of how they will approach what they pass. Um, and and I think in part what that means is that you know speed will will be important. You know, they're going to need to look at th doing things in 2021. Um, and, uh, uh, and that's because it, sliding into 2022 is not a good outcome because you're now talking about trying to get major legislation done in an election year, which always proves to be 
uh, a bit more challenging. So first and foremost, I think they're going to look at COVID relief and you know and, and incentives. You know, we've already seen a number of things uh, being proposed, uh, uh, both in terms of a budget as well as some some detailed proposals. Uh, for for now, um, they're focused more on what those reliefs look like as opposed to specific tax provisions. But we could expect to see some more some more activity later on in the year as it relates to tax. Okay, thanks, Tom. So clearly, there will be likely some room eh, for changes in the tax system. So now I'm a little bit curious what these changes could be about. And and Evie may ask you perhaps. Uh, in the run-up to the elections, I think that the Biden administration already made some proposals. If you look at those, uh, can we learn something of the direction that the changes could go to? Absolutely, Peter. Um, I'll try to summarize them for you and, and starting off with the easiest and, and probably the one uh, most of you are aware of, and that is a, an increase of the rates from 21 today to potentially 28. That was at least a number uh, that was floated throughout uh, the campaign. And I'm sure Tom, Tom will share some thoughts on, on where we might end up in reality. Um, then another one uh, that's quite important uh, is a reduction of the guilty deduction to 25%, where it's 50 today. That will have an impact for many U.S. Uh, multinationals, but also groups investing in the U.S. Um, linked to guilty, um, there is also was also a proposal um, to apply it on a country by country basis, which then has a link to the pillar two uh, discussion at OECD level. But we'll touch upon that later. Um, and then a change to the qualified business asset investment uh, calculation uh, that is part of the guilty um, setup. Another one uh, is yet another minimum taxation uh, in the US. They already have a couple, uh, but this time on a global uh, books, book tax income. Um, and then uh, from a European perspective, something that is at least probably more perceived um, in the, the same mindset as what the Trump administration was looking at. So a 10% offshoring penalty if you take activities outside of the US um, and a 10% tax credit for new investments in manufacturing in the US. Um, so those is as a short summary, Peter, of, of what we heard during um, the run-up of, of the elections from the Biden administration. But Tom, you already referred to it. They only have a small majority um, in the Senate and also the House is not an overall win. So what do we think in reality um, we can expect in, in the coming years in terms of tax reform at the U.S. level? Well, Evie, I think, you know, what's it's important to bear in mind, you know, timing as well, too, right? That That, you know, if they need to get something done, this year, they need to make sure everyone is on board. But, but um, they're going to they're going to have limited time to, you know, really think deeply about um, what more complicated changes might actually mean, right? And I think they want to try and avoid, you know, um, something that requires a lot of explanation or that might trigger a, a lot of debate, and and uh, and 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 try and find the path of least resistance. So. Really, when I think you look at some of the things that were proposed in the during the campaign, many of them um, are, I think, a bit too complex for for Congress to take on. You know, things like um, uh, the country by country on guilty, and you know, um, is, is I think a good example of 
of, of, of being you know, too complex in terms of where they might get to at, at the end of the day. Um, and, and so I think simply put, what I would expect to see is certainly a, an increase to the corporate rate. Um, I suspect it's very unlikely we'd ever see a 28%. It's probably at most gonna be something like 25 and may not even be that high. It, it would not surprise me at all if they reduced the guilty deduction um, because it's sort of relatively explainable. It's just a, it's almost just a budget impact in some respects of that, of, you know, what does it mean to the, you know, to the, um, to the government's take if, if the deduction was 25% instead of 50. I mean, it's important to bear in mind that um, if you, if you change the guilty deduction, what, what also happens absent, you know, some other change to the architecture of the rules, what also happens is that the foreign-derived intangible income deduction goes down as well. So those th two things go go hand in hand. And you'd expect there, you know, if, there, if we're going to reduce the deduction against guilty inclusions, that we might also see, or probably also would see, reductions to the foreign-derived intangible income benefits, um, you know, on, on the the back of that as well. So, so again, I think um, it's it's really important to keep things simple. Um, I I would also put the minimum tax on book income as being in the complex box and very unlikely. And I think they're way more likely to say dial up the beat rate as a way to deal with the minimum tax regime. Uh, you know, as opposed to just you know adopting yet another regime that you know everybody has to understand and and uh, you know and and consider the the overall outcome on. I mean, you know, we've already seen a number of, of, of I would say, detailed um, proposals from individual uh, um, persons in Congress, whether in the Senate or the House, um, I think mostly on the Senate side, but um, where, you know, trying to, a lot of those are coming from Republicans, trying to limit a little bit where the Democrats might go on these things. And, um, you know, w when you hear about those things, you know, sometimes that's just simply someone standing on the floor of the Congress and introducing a bill and that bill just may never go anywhere, may never even see a vote. So um, there'll be a lot of noise in the system as we get through it. But, I, you know, I really suspect at the end of the day, it's, it's going to be that simpler approach. Thanks, Tom. Uh, what you mentioned, Tom, dialing up the beat rate is an interesting one because, indeed, it, it, from my perspective, looking at it, that's probably one of the easiest ways to increase the minimum tax. And it is also very relevant for, for all our European companies investing in the US because many of them are confronted with beat. Um, so that's an interesting one to share. Maybe another one that many of them are confronted with is, is the track record in terms of um, ratifying double tax treaties. Recently, a Hungarian treaty was postponed. Um, but do we have an idea, Tom, on, on uh, whether we can uh, expect um, the ratification of, of the treaties anytime soon or what the holdup is there? Yeah, we, we, we don't actually have a specific indication, um, although um, we, you know, we, we do know it's on people's radar, if you will. Uh, you know, the, the issue came up, for example, in the hearings for Treasury Secretary Yellen. Um, and, uh, you know, she mentioned that it was a priority to, to get some of those issues resolved. Um, what, what had happened was, you know, going back a few years, <clears throat> excuse me, there were um, some objections within the Senate itself on ratifying treaties that had information sharing provisions. It, it, took, it took quite a while, but eventually... 
um, that that concern was overruled and um, and that effectively unlocked the Senate's ability to start ratifying treaties. And so, you know, in the summer of 2019, some of those tre some treaties that had been held up for a while, you know, finally were ratified. Spain is a very good example of one. Um, uh, the Hungarian treaty had been renegotiated for um, quite quite a few years ago, uh, and that did not get ratified in the end because of a concern around um, the non-discrimination article in that treaty and uh, applying um, in such a manner as to eliminate beat for payments made to qualifying Hungarian residents. So that put ratification on hold while they tried to figure out what to do on that. And it's a, it's a rather technical point, but the difference between that and, for example, the Spanish treaty was the Spanish treaty was a protocol uh, which um, uh, is 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 kind of an amendment to the existing treaty, if you will, and the and the treaty with Hungary is a, was a brand new one, and there was a concern that because that and it was an entirely new treaty, in, uh, ratified after the enactment of BEAT, that 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 treaty would actually overrule the the BEAT provision. So so that that's the sticking point on that. Um, I think there are a number of of higher priority issues that Treasury likely will deal with before we get to, um, you know, fixing or 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 um, figuring out what they're going to do on that on that treaty issue. Um, so we we don't actually have an indication of timing yet, but I I would be surprised if it was this year. I suspect it's really going to be something that'll slide on into next year. Okay, uh, thanks, Tom and Evie, for for sharing eh, your your insights in in what we can possibly expect uh, in the U.S. I think it's time now to take a look at the other side of the ocean, uh, let's say, and 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 wonder how the relationship with the European Union can evolve. And then, Jean-Philippe, I, uh, I come to you, of course. Um, I think the European Union issued a kind of transatlantic agenda eh, for global change in December. Um, what is your takeaway from, from that document, uh, Jean-Philippe? Thank you, Pierre. Um, so let me try to summarize in a few words the most relevant aspects of the proposal for a new transatlantic agenda put forward by the European Commission beginning of December. Um, although the document does not expli explicitly mention this, it's not a secret that the relationship between Europe and the US was a bit troubled under the Trump administration. Uh, the European Commission uh, wants to change the dynamics and counts on the Biden administration for a better collaboration. Uh, from the perspective of the European Commission, there are many commonalities between the political agenda of the US and the agenda of Europe. And therefore, the European Commission wishes to work together with the US to address some of the most urgent global challenges. So what are these um, shared interests according to the European Commission? Um, well, in this regard, the transatlantic agenda uh, contains four building blocks. First, and uh, not surprisingly, of course, the recovery from the COVID crisis. Uh, second, working together uh, on climate change. The third building block is uh, protecting uh, liber our liberal democracies as compared to more uh, authoritarian regimes and uh, closed economies. And the fourth and last building block is working together on trade, digital, and technology. So these are the four uh, cornerstones of the transatlantic agenda proposed by the European Commission. Um, but maybe more relevant, uh, what is, does the agenda say uh, about tax? And here I would like to emphasize uh, two points. Uh, 
First, um, with respect to the, the second building block on climate change, the proposal mentions uh, the EU and the US should work closely together on emissions trading, carbon pricing and taxation. And second, with respect to the taxation of the digital economy, the Commission document states uh, that the US and the EU should strongly commit to reach a global solution within the context uh, of the OECD. Thanks, Jean-Philippe, and, and thanks for bringing that point up on, on, on the pillars, because it's, I think, for, for myself, for the listeners, a very important uh, topic. It was also touched on, I think, in the very beginning of this podcast, and, and we had the previous podcast already on, on the direction of travel for Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Um, Evie, can, can you recap for, for me and the listeners where we stand today with the pillars? Absolutely, Peter. As you might remember, um, the OECD proposal contains two important elements. Pillar one, basically, in very short, a reallocation of taxing rights, and then a global minimum tax via Pillar two. Um, everybody following the debate that's been going on for months will remember that the US um, had some strong objections against Pillar one. Um, and also on Pillar 2, there was uh, quite a bit back and forth um, on, on what would happen with Guilty uh, under Pillar 2, because Guilty, um, for the ones who have a view on the mechanics behind Pillar 2, there is an income inclusion rule there, which definitely is uh, partly based on, on the US Guilty regime. Uh, and um, in order for Pillar 2 to pass, um, the US has strongly pushed for a grandfather of, grandfathering of the guilty regime. Now, in the end, where we ended up uh, under the last blueprint of uh, Pillar 2 is that there is some kind of coexistence foreseen between the income inclusion rule um, or the entire setup of the global minimum tax rule um, and uh, guilty. Uh, meaning that as long as uh, the guilty regime wouldn't change significantly under the Biden administration, um, it, it would be able to, to coexist uh, with um, the rules under the globe taxation of Pillars 2. That being said, um, there, there's definitely uh, no final answer yet on, on what the US view is there. Um, so maybe, um, Tom, do you expect a change in um, mindset from the US on Pillar 1, Pillar 2? Do you think there will be, um, will be more buy-in? What's your view there? Well, I think that, you know, there's more broadly, there's clearly a, a change in approach of, um, in, of the administration in terms of being at the table. And, you know, we've, we've, we, we saw last week President Biden say, you know, diplomacy is back and, you know, the, the U.S. has rejoined the Paris Accord. And so there's, 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 you know, the, I think how the government will approach some of these discussions is clearly going to be very different. Um, but I think it's important to remember that many of the underlying policies, particularly as it relates to, BEPs and you know things like Pillar One and Pillar Two, um, those policies date back to the Obama administration. So I, you know, I it's a question that's come up quite a lot. Of you know now we have uh, the Biden administration in place. You know, does that mean all the stuff will kind of easily get unlocked? And it's it's hard to see that. I think there's still quite a bit of challenges. There are still quite a bit of challenges to uh, to work through. In, in, in getting something done. And, you know, you take something like the grandfathering of guilty and, 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 and um, 
treating it as effectively a qualifying income inclusion rule. What that's really getting at is, you know, the situation where you have U.S. multinationals having intermediate holding companies, and the and the, and the structure of the OECD's uh, approach to that is to deem um, the guilty regime to be a qualifying income inclusion rule, such that it turns off that same regime that you know that pillar two issue at an intermediate hold co level. Uh, if it's the other way around, where we have you know, a, a non-U.S. parent and the U.S. is an intermediate hold co. It's frankly, it's very hard to see right now what is the path to turn off guilty where the parent has a qualifying income regime. And, you know, that that would require some major statutory uh, change. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it's it's not impossible, but it, it, it feels it feels extremely challenging. So, I mean, we have seen um there was one proposal, you know, one of the things I was alluding to earlier, you know, in terms of individual senators making a variety of proposals is, you know, one of them proposed that uh, whatever change to the guilty deduction we get ought to be forced to stay in line with the OECD minimum tax rules um, as a as a kind of um, approach to ensuring that it remains a qualifying regime. But I think there's a whole lot that needs to get done as it relates to guilty and um, and uh, and pillar two. Um, one of the other issues with that, for example, is that the OECD report said, well, it would be appropriate to turn off beat if the recipient was subject to, you know, a pillar two regime, or if pillar two was relevant, I should say, to the receipt of that payment. Again, that feels um, very challenging. Uh, and then finally, I guess just back to pillar one, we know that um, uh, the 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 U.S. administration or U.S. tax policy has been pretty resistant to um, dealing with uh, digital tax issues in, in different ways than than other you know uh, uh, other businesses and other markets, uh, and that's you know that that will continue. So there's still going to be challenges on that as well. So unfortunately, I don't really have a a clear outlook on that, other than to use the word challenging quite a bit. But uh, I think it's important to to. Um, understand that, you know, diplomacy is not the same thing as agreeing on, you know, some of the underlying tax policies, of course. Okay, thanks, Tom, for sharing that. Uh, I think we come at the end of our podcast. Eh? This is all we, we had time for today. Um, very interesting to see that uh, there will be room for changes. What I take from, from the podcast is that um, it needs still to be seen uh, which room that you um, that the Biden administration will take for making changes to tax laws as opposed to other changes. Uh, but there's definitely going to be some changes ahead. So um, we'll definitely come back to the listeners in a new podcast if there's uh, more more specific changes that, that we see. Uh, for now, I want to thank the speakers. So Tom, Evie, Jean-Philippe, thank you very much for joining us. And of course, I want to thank the listeners for tuning in uh, in our uh, podcast series. Thank you.